today's episode, we arrive at Exodus, the second half of chapter 12. This is going to be verses 29 through 51. Today's episode concludes the narrative which began in chapter 11, namely, the tenth and final plague is completed. Yahweh is fully victorious over the false gods of the Egyptians, and Pharaoh lets the Hebrews go. Israel's 430 years of sojourning in Egypt have come to an end. Moses is vindicated. But does this mean there will be no more hardships for God's people? Good morning. Today is Thursday, November 24th, a blessed Thanksgiving day to each of you. You're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Let me first say that I am grateful for your faithfulness to God's Word as dedicated listeners of the program. I'm also grateful to our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their amazing translation and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. To help us wrap up the 10th plague and take us into the Israelite exodus itself and the Passover, I'm pleased to welcome my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. John Brunner, Pastor Emeritus and former District President of the Eastern District LCMS, now residing in Franklin, North Carolina, attending Resurrection Lutheran Church there. Pastor Brunner, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to your family. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people will be listening to us today on Thanksgiving. There's a good chance that people might be taking the day off and they'll be listening to us uh, on a podcast after Thanksgiving. But either way, uh, you know, there's so much to give thanks for in terms of God's redemption of us through Jesus Christ. And so what an amazing text for us to cover on the day that we're looking to be grateful for what God gives us. And that is the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. It's just sort of a, a really neat coincidence. Uh, before we dive into the text, which I'm eager to do, uh, I'd like to invite you to share with our audience just a little bit about yourself, brother. Uh, people at home like to hear about what's going on in different places of the country as far as LCMS Lutheranism is concerned. And I, and I know that you have been involved in leadership and uh, you now, I think, uh, fill in from time to time there at the congregation you serve. I think you're still vacant there. So yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how God's using you. Yeah, right. About the last one, I, I currently am the vacancy pastor at Resurrection in Franklin. A little bit odd in that I was the call pastor there for nine years and now serve in the vacancy. It's something which, you know, every fiber of my DP body uh, results <laughs> against. But uh, sure. our circumstances here are such that there are not a whole lot of other people that are available to serve that. So yeah, back in the Saddle again after uh, after fifty years. I just came back uh, a little while ago from my fiftieth uh, class reunion at Concordia's Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, so that's how long I've been at this. Uh, we started out in a dual parish in South Dakota, in Columbia and Hecla, South Dakota, where both of our children were born. Uh, then we served for ten years at Trinity in Wausau, Wisconsin. Uh, where I focused primarily in youth ministry and as the worship coordinator for a very large congregation in Wausau. And then we moved to, uh, took a call to Christ Memorial Lutheran Church in Malvern, Pennsylvania, a uh, suburb of, of Philadelphia. And, and, and then from there was elected to serve three terms 
as the president of the Eastern District, which is all of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and and uh, all of Western New York, West of Utica, New York, and two congregations in Garrett County, Maryland. That was my job for nine years. And then Jaron and I decided to get out of that before we retired and try to get back into the parish, which we did. And um, and we're called to, to this place in the mountains, uh, this congregation, where happily your father is a member. So full disclosure. I have a whole stack of stuff that he gave me to talk about you, but not going to use <laughs> much of that. Uh, but, uh, your dad is a great asset here, uh, and one of our elders, and we're very pleased to call him friend as well. So now that's me, we, Karen and I, my wife, Karen, is a registered nurse. Uh, she's also retired. Now uh, we have two children uh, and their spouses and four grandchildren, one of whom is about to get married in a couple of months, so we'll oh wow enter into that next phase of our life. Um, been a really a tremendous blessed journey. We've had a uh, as I you could probably tell it from a little history a rich, varied experience. We've been in the in the country. We've been in the in a small town. We've been in the suburbs. We've been in office. It's um, we got to do just about everything there is to do uh, except teach at the seminary level, which uh, I think I'm not allowed to do, but that's it. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I am grateful to the Lord for, you know, your service to the church in Christ's kingdom. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of experience to draw from there. You are right in uh, disclosing that, you know, Franklin, North Carolina is located in the mountains of North Carolina, which is where I grew up. Uh, where I'm from. I mention it every now and then on the show. I, I became a Lutheran first. My dad then followed me into uh, the LCMS church. And then, yeah, now look at that. He's an elder in the church, and I know he's eager to serve and eager to learn. And uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to have him, and I'm grateful that he, he suggested you to be on the show. And so I'm happy that you're here. Uh, we're going to dig into the text because we do have uh, some stuff to talk about today because, like I said, this is such a, a great text. But before we do that, just one more thing. Brother, would you start off our time together in prayer? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God and uh, get us into places where you can use us through a variety of means. And uh, we thank you for your goodness, your people, Israel, that continues uh, in your goodness to us this day. We ask that you would move us along to the place where you want us and uh, help us to see what your will is for us as you go about blessing the people around us. We ask that you would be with us now during this time of study. Uh, bless it to um, our, our advantage and to uh, find ways to give you glory through it. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, folks at home, due to the nature, and I've already discussed this uh, yesterday and the day before, due to the nature of just the program, which is limited to only an hour, uh, you know, we had to divide up this section. The narrative really begins back in chapter 11, and then it continues into the first half of 12 and then through the rest of 12. So we're kind of picking up in the middle of of Moses explaining to us how this 10th plague came around. So starting with verse 29, this is this is when the event happens at midnight. But uh, brother pastor, if we could just maybe catch the people up, what has been going on uh, in, in since the ninth plague and 
that leads up basically sets the stage for what happens at midnight uh, in verse 29 before we read those verses. Yeah, so um, we're going to get to a point in chapter 12 where it will repeat much of what was uh, first talked about in chapter 11, uh, where God talks to Moses about the the last plague that uh, the, uh, you know, which we know as Passover, where the uh, lamb was sacrificed, the blood was placed on the the top of the door, uh, the meal was eaten, the children were uh, encouraged to ask the right questions so that they could give the the history of the people, uh, and then uh, the angel of death passed over and and uh, brought about the death of the firstborn uh, in the houses without uh, that blood uh, sign on their doors. Uh, and you know, then uh, the neighbors uh, realized that this was a terrible thing. Started you know, people of Israel went to their neighbors, got their gold, etc., and yes, I as a final offering to encourage them to leave. Uh, and then, you know, then comes this final play, in the inaction of God's uh, promised um, death of the firstborn of those that that didn't trust his word to put their blood on the door. So, um, you know, that, it gets repeated again and again, almost uh, a little like a liturgy where the, the same words get repeated again and again uh, because this becomes the central um, action among salvation event among the people of Israel, and it, you know this narrative and gets repeated again and again for the people to hear and remember, and, and then be able to ask their children to ask the question so they can say it again. Um, so that's all leading up. It's uh, kind of a, um, a a repetitious thing in the, in these couple of chapters until it gets acted out now. Right in this chapter. And we know that in the Hebrew, just sort of as a literary device, things are repeated uh, by means of emphasis to emphasize important things. And as you pointed out, this, yeah, this is the key story for the Jews in terms of recalling God's keeping of the covenant and his redemption of them, which points forward to the future redemption that they will receive through the Messiah who is to come. And so this is why I've been saying that Exodus really is a foundational uh, foundational text, a foundational book of the Bible for us to cling to as Christians because it also is the is focuses on the redemption that we receive through Jesus. It, we, what we experience now is a fulfillment of what this was just a foretaste of. And, and we also see that as as we go through the different plagues, you've heard me connect them to the different gods of Egypt, right? So with the very first plague, the the Nile is God, Yahweh, getting glory over, say, uh, Hapi, the spirit of the Nile, or Kanum, the guardian of the Nile. Then we had the frogs, which were uh, considered holy by the Egyptians because they were representatives of the goddess Hecht. Uh, the lice or whatever that ended up being is a, is a plague that, that is uh, against the earth god Seth. The, the flies, uh, we can continue to look because of the goddess Hathor. It's God getting glory over the various gods. And we can go on and on. You can listen to the other episodes for each god that we've connected to the plagues. But here, the plague is now against, in some ways, 
not the chief god of the Egyptians, but the most uh, earthly god, and that is Pharaoh himself. And through these plagues, the people of Egypt have become increasingly frustrated with their god king. And so it's funny in a cosmic kind of way that this whole thing begins with with Pharaoh saying, I'm not going to let the people go. I'm not going to let the people go at least nine times. I mean, he wavers a little bit, but then changes his mind. But now, as you pointed out, the people are begging them to go. Please go. <laughs> it's uh, God has certainly made his point, hasn't he? Yeah, and and that it's a you know, you know, so many rich um, details surrounding death throughout Scripture. It's no Scripture never shies away from from death, you know. And uh, as Christians, that's sort of our takeoff point. Um, but that you know, that death, which was you know, sort of ceremonialized in among the Egyptians, the whole. Isis Osiris thing um, gets mm-hmm. used as the as the weapon against the Pharaoh who you know always would mock death, but you know they put themselves into positions where they could um, be available at <laughs> at the time that their death was over. You know, in, in their in their mummification and their their grand tombs, um, that God simply slaps them with death. Said, you know. I got your death right here, um, and That's you right. could do about it. And it's going to come in a way you can't possibly understand. Um, that it's just going to sweep over you. Uh, you can't. There's no. There's no defense against this um, right. angel of death, which uh, of course also shows up a number of other times um, in the in the history of Israel later on. What it's going to be about? Like you know. That'll get uh, uh, overcome by the angel of death, but but now here their freedom, well, as you said, Phil, the you know over and over again, you know, Pharaoh is sort of toying with them, di- denying them, and and now God just saying, you know what, <laughs> here it is, it's over, and that's right. By the time I'm done with you, you're going to be begging us to leave, which of course is what happens. Um, yeah, and lots of those. Uh, Amazing little details about the wives of the of the families, you know, emptying their jewel cases to get the women of Israel to get out of here. Um, right? Sure. Yeah, and I, you know, and and the Pharaoh, you know, he keeps wavering. He even sort of uh, pretends to repent a couple of times. He flip flops, as a lot of politicians do in general, right? So here we have this God King, and while he's certainly concerned about all the plagues that are affecting the people, including his own household. It's a lot different when you're holding your own son in your arms whose life has been taken. Let's read the text. Let's read 29 through 32 because that just gets us started. This is going to be uh, what happens um, at the moment that the death of the firstborn occurs. I'm reading from the ESV. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So it's really come home for Pharaoh, hasn't it, yeah, Pastor? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think I'm struck in the structure of this text. Um, now, this was a pre-literary community, right? They didn't write things down yet. Uh, they're going to start pretty quickly. You know, they've been living among these people who already do. Um, yeah, and so somebody learns something along the way somehow. But pretty soon they're going to start writing things down, but they're not at that point now. They don't have education. They're slaves. They don't, you know, get to do that. But they've been hearing these stories. And again, you know, that's why this particular story gets repeated over and over and over again. That's how they learn the stories, uh, saying them to each other and told them to each other. But if you think about the last couple of chapters in the book of Genesis um, and, and, the, and the settings of those stories, um, you know, the Joseph stories, uh, and how Joseph gets into Egypt and how, the, how his family gets into Egypt. And think about the characters and the settings of those stories, and they get repeated right here at the end. These are the places where the plague is going to hit, and they're all of those places that are mentioned in those Joseph stories, right? The the throne room, the dungeon, the livestock, those are all in those stories. So, so the people, as they're hearing the stories, are, you know, ticking them off, you know. Maybe they've got a little mental list of all of the things that need to be taken care of out of the Joseph stories, that hero. You know, so now they're wow. now they're getting the Moses hero stories, and wow, there's a lot of the same language that's used um, in in the end of Genesis. Uh, now here uh, in the middle of, of Exodus, uh, just to keep the what the, the context for the people as they're recognizing this is not a haphazard thing God's up to, right? Um, when God moves His people around. Um, it's not just because God's done nothing else to do. There's a there's a method here. There's a there's a transition that's being made, and the people of Israel over these you know centuries, millennia, are going to keep doing this, and they're always going to be able to look back at this story, and you know that's part of the way the story gets told. But they're always going to be able to get to look back at this story, and and you know, sink root. So wherever they are, this is the story that names them, um, and that you know, it's interesting that it's good. This is going to air on Thanksgiving. You know that this is this is their Thanksgiving day, um, and if it yeah. ever had the opportunity to celebrate this feast with a Jewish family, it is a Thanksgiving feast. And so this, the trigger here, the sparrow uh, getting getting his and. Um, facing death and it's not it, there's no schadenfreude here it's not like the the writer or the the teller of the story is saying you know nah, 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 there's Cheryl. it's a tragic story uh, never never gets away from saying you know it must have been terrible for Cheryl. you know not well poor old Pharaoh, but you know it was a bad <laughs> thing uh, and, and Pharaoh now turns faces the people and says Okay, yeah. and then that curious little thing that you get, you know, later on in the book of Daniel, where 
after the after the king gets defeated, the one that's going to deny the God of Israel when when he recognizes his defeat, would he said, you know, would you put in a good word for me? There is a painting, and, I, and I'm sure you've seen it, but there's a, a beautiful painting, and it has a, a picture of I think Pharaoh, and he's sitting on his throne, and he has his sons and his son in his arms, and it's draped over, and he's looking defeated, and it reminds us that death, as you just said, is always bad. This isn't a gloat over, you know, oh, look, you know, your firstborn are all killed because it wasn't just, say, the firstborn of Pharaoh. It was the firstborn all the way down to the people in the dungeons. And and that they didn't deserve that, so to speak. Or the Egyptians who had nothing to do with Pharaoh's obstinance to let the people go. But God is showing himself as the 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 sovereign over all creation through all these different plagues and now he's showing himself as the sovereign over death and the dramatic difference here is just as there was darkness in the land of the egyptians and yet light in goshen uh, just as there were flies in one place but not over the hebrews you know we see here that those who were faithful who marked their doors as god instructed who had faith that god would uh, would keep his promise and and rescue them, God sets them apart, makes them holy. He saves them. He redeems them. And those who do not uh, have to endure this horrible punishment for sin, which is death. And so we look back and we say, you know, in the midst of the things that are happening to us today, whether they be bad or good, but oftentimes we lament when they're bad. and, And it's hard for us to see God's rescue when we're in the midst of those things that are negative but once we're out from them we can look back and we can say look at god at work and the same thing here we have now the hebrews who now are being told teach this story as you illustrated to your children for eternity because they don't know yet but god knows that this is going to be a recurring theme they're going to forget him as it seems like they did before moses came back to remind them They're going to forget him. They're going to fall into apathy about God. They're going to start straying from the faith. They will be obstinate, and then they will be put back into a situation where they need to call upon God, you know, exile the Babylonians, the Assyrians. And then God will redeem them, and this happens over and over again. And then you fast forward to Christ and that ultimate redemption, and then you have us. Each day we wake up. Say, Lord, as Luther would instruct us, let us not sin today. And then at the end of every day, pray for forgiveness for all the sins we committed. So we each day need to have that redemption, that Passover redemption, uh, by relying on God. So it's such an important text. It really is. Yeah, and not the first time that the people of Israel have have stared at that picture that you you referenced. Uh, you know, they they know about Genesis twenty two. They know about and um, a man taking his son in his arms, right. you know, Abraham with Isaac should have been dead, but wasn't. You know, this is this is pretty clearly woven into their identity. They know about you know, fathers and sons and death. Um, so you know, when Pharaoh has to face, you know, they've got some understanding of that. 
I'd like to uh, add some more verses to the conversation, verses 33 through 42. I know this is the Exodus. This is when they finally leave. And we just have a few minutes before the break, but I want to get us started on this before we take it. So I'll be reading again from the ESV. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is the night of keeping watch, pardon me, watching kept to the Lord by the, all the people of Israel throughout their generations. All right, so we added these verses to our text. You know, the plague, or at midnight, the Lord strikes down the firstborn. Before the sun even comes up, Pharaoh is summoning them, telling them to get lost, get out of here. And the Egyptians, the regular people, they're happy about it too. Just everybody leave. Here's gold, here's silver, here's clothing, whatever it takes, just leave. And they did. And there's 600,000 men on foot. So uh, some estimates say that that means there would probably be about two and a half million people, which is just mind-boggling, especially considering the figurative number of 70 or 75 that they began with, you know, just over 400 years prior. But, but there's this boom in, in population, and now God is doing genuinely a miracle. He's rescued all of his people from the land. Take us through this, Pastor. You know, they're, they're starting to leave. All the way down to the time of Jesus, um, this is going to be known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Huh? Um, and here you get to find out why that's true. Already got the, the admonition back in chapter 12 that, you know, when you have, well, earlier on in chapter 12, um, when you have the feast, you're going to have it with unleavened bread. And, you know, the question might be, well, why would you want to do that? <laughs> um and, and uh, here we find out it's because it's a bread of haste. Um, and you get this amazing picture. There's a, I think it's in the yeah, one of the old versions of of the Good News Bible. There's a there's a line drawing of, of this of the of the parade going out of Egypt with with folks you know one after another after another and the women carrying their their kneading bowls with the bread in it wrapped up in clothes. And tied on their shoulders. There's an awful lot of detail. I think, um, you know, for this story, to, you know, why do we need to know all of that? Well, you need to know all of that because, well, because it's important. And this is this is the name of our feast. The name of our feast is 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is not a feast of, of dancing around and, uh, and making great celebration. Uh, this is the feast of, of getting out of town in a hurry and, uh, and identifying ourselves forever as the people who got out of town in a hurry and, and naming our principal feast uh, for a piece of bread that we didn't even have time to let rise. But, you know, that's a, you know, there's just so much in that um, about how the people identified themselves. You know, we're going to we'll get out into the desert in a while and, you know, the whole idea of what to eat is going to become a major question for the folks. But here, packing up their bread um, without letting it rise before they bake it, um, just as they did in the, in the feast. Um, you know, so this is, this is what it is. It's always going to be haste, always going to be something, you know, we're moving on. But this, you know, I think the intricate detail and beautifully said, I think the way God has the people remember this, the words themselves, um, you know, who can't see this? And this is a pretty beautiful way of talking about why they have the feast the way they do. And, and, you know, in them with the little details about the, the Egyptian folks saying, you know, just get out of here or, or we'll be dead. You know, you can't hang around us anymore. Well, thanks for your 400 years of service, but get out of here. Uh, but yeah, yeah, right. This, this urgency. Um, and I wonder, you know, we think in, in our time, often thinking that there's an urgency around what we have to do. You know, we even call it a tyrant, you know, the tyranny and the urgent. And I, you know, I, I just wonder about that. You know, I, I'm not a person who senses that often, but I see it in others, you know, that they're just got to get to the next thing. Question always is, you know, why do you need to do, why do you need to do that? Can't you just, you know, slow down? I, I live in the mountains because if it, things go slower here, you know, it just, they sure, um, they sure do. I was going to say they do go slower back in the mountains where you are. I spent some time in Connecticut and things, everybody's always moving so fast and uh, it's good. And it's we'll, good we'll, to slow we'll down. Sit down and look at the sense that's what we did. Uh, and, 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 and not about that, but you know, this idea of urgency that I, I think all human beings understand that, um, that there are times when things are just urgent. That's all. And in this case, God's God himself is, is emphasizing that for the folks. This is, you've got to get at this. And we're going to find out why, you know. They're going to be standing on the seashore watching the army of Pharaoh come in after them. Um, timing was everything for that. Um, and so let's get a move on. And always, you're always going to remember what this was like because, you know, we put the bread of urgency, the bread of haste into our feast. God did that for us. So, um, and, and you know, this you know, verse thirty-six. I just like this turn of whatever it is. It's a turn of something. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, because they're all dying because they're still there. But the uh, but and so you know, here's this picture of how God works, huh? The um, something's got to happen, and the people that have been oppressing you for 
hundreds of years now are favorably disposed for G. Well, yeah. Verse 36, he says, the Lord give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, which is what you're saying. And then within the same verse, it concludes, Moses concludes by saying, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So it's sort of a, you can't have it both ways, right? Did they plunder them or did they, or did the people have favor? Well, of course, you know, with God, it is both ways. They were happy to see them leave. Uh, one commentator I read said that this these 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 gold and silver items and clothes were back payments for their years of servitude, which I don't think I agree with. I think that's sort of a an interesting way to look at it. I don't know. Maybe there's an argument for it, but I agree with your point of view much more, and that is that they were happy to get rid of them. Here, take this stuff. Don't we're we're sick of dying. Everybody we know has someone dead, uh, and it has something to do with you. And we're ready to see you go. I tell you what, brother, we are up against a break. So we're going to take that break. But folks at home, when we come back, Pastor Brunner and I will finish up the uh, 10th plague here. uh, And we will uh, continue also into the Exodus and the Passover. So don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are, there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. John Brunner, Pastor Emeritus and former District President of the Eastern District, LCMS. Now, folks, before we continue, I want to say I love hearing from you. You know, I say this every episode, and you also know that I answer every email I receive. So be sure to send me your questions or comments about this show or uh, or any other program to pastorboo at gmail.com. That email address is P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, uh, Pastor Brunner, before the break, we were talking about the, you know, the Egyptians sort of sending off the Hebrews with all of this gold. The Lord has predisposed them to do this. Probably they're also uh, eager to see them go because of their sins. But you were also talking a little bit about the unleavened cakes and how they may not have known it, but God knew what was going to happen. He knew that at some point they're going to be standing on the shore um, and they're going to be fleeing from the Egyptian armies. uh, And spoiler alert, uh, they make it and the Egyptian armies lose. Uh, But I, I do have a question. Is there a connection between, and I mean a direct connection, between the Passover ritual that happened, which included removing uh, leaven, and the fact that in this case it was just because they were in haste, they didn't have time to leaven their cakes or their dough or their bread. So, uh, I, you know, I don't. I, is there that connection, or are, are these two separate things? Because one seems to represent sin. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's a connection. I think the question is, you know, chicken or egg. Um, it, um, 
you know, this, this thing has been around for a long time. This, this Passover ritual has been around for a long time. And, you know, some indication that they may have already been doing something like this already. You know, um, God has a way of using our common experiences to, uh, well, what could be more common than a meal? And how many, the, the idea of meal in scripture is just, <laughs> I can't go far in scripture with, without running up against a meal. These guys would be jerk. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, eating is just a really big deal. Um, and, you know, you're going to get to this, you know, you get across the, the Red Sea and you have this experience over there and the, the climax for the covenant experience is going to be, you know, sitting down for lunch with God. Um, and, you know, that this just keeps happening. You know, the whole manna experience, et cetera. But um, that unleavened bread gets focused on so many different ways. Um, you know, so is, is the woman of the house scurrying around with her little dustpan and broom? And sweeping up everything so that there's no accidental leaven later. You know, is that is that the deciding factor, or was it because God said there won't be any leaven? So, you know, because you, you, you're in a hurry. And I think the answer is I don't know. Um, but I think the answer is also you know, wow, what a coincidence, huh? You know that there's this. Uh, Always this connection. You just, you, if you had a, if you wanted to do a conspiracy map, you know, put all this stuff up here in the wall and connect it with, with strands of yarn, you're just right. going to find this everywhere. I mean, just everywhere. And, and, you know, Luther does this thing about, you know, the, with the, with this leaven of our, our sin, it's got to be removed. And, you know, how are we going to do that? Well, it, you know, good thing for us. That's already been taken care of. Huh? And this feast we celebrate every Sunday, you know, is not just because we have nothing else to do, but to remind ourselves that this is how our life with God, you were mentioning, you know, this central uh, act of salvation, we keep getting reminded of that. Um, it's who we are. It defines us. Um, and, and that God's always in the business of spreading out a feast before us. Huh? Um, yeah, you know, even in the 23rd Psalm, right? You coming into the courts of the, this is kind of the opposite of 23rd Psalm. Right? On your way out of the courts of your enemies, you're going to have this feast. Well, 23rd Psalm says, you know what? I'll take you right back in to the courts of your enemies and spread you a feast. If that in or out, doesn't matter to me. Um, God's going to be the host at the feast and we're going to be part of it. Leaven, I'm leaven. Yeah, I, I think it matters because it mattered to God. Um, symbolically, maybe, I don't know that right. there's anything else to it. Um, you know, theologians over the years have certainly found enough connections to why <laughs> unleavened. Um, you know, you know, and Jesus himself, you know, talks about, you know, he's leaven of Pharisees, all that stuff. It's pretty critical, but, you know, I think that's maybe the extent of it. Um, you know, the leaven of sin, the leaven of our pride, and all of those leavenings in our lives, you know, got to be gone because this is all about what God's up. 
And so I think eventually that's what it comes to. Is it the piece of haste? Yeah. God's got a plan. Let's go. Uh, Is it a piece that's absent leaven because of the purity, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Okay. (laughs) I don't know that one excludes the other. Well, that makes sense. You know, we Lutherans are very good about saying, you know, having two somewhat contradictory statements and then just being able to say yes to both of them. That's our our wheelhouse. It really is. But, you know, there's some truth in this, though, because if God is setting this up, if if one requires careful preparation to remove yeast and the other is basically you just didn't have time to prepare the yeast, um, ultimately both are about trusting in God and following his will. And so for Jesus then to later take up yeast and other ideas to say, look, this is the, you know, the yeast of the Pharisees because he's using these examples that people understand. Well, that's how God works. He condescends to us in the things that we know about, like for them, baking bread or having a meal, table fellowship, you know, and God could have, for instance, wiped out all the firstborn and spared all the faithful in um in israel without them going through and sacrificing the lamb and painting the blood on the doorposts but he has them do that as a sign to one another of their obedience and faithfulness god knows who's obedient without them actually doing it but this gives them the opportunity to connect something real and tangible to god's favor upon them And we see that too, as they leave, they're going to need money. They're going to need possessions. So God makes it such that the people of Israel give them what they need. He knows what's coming. Um, And we've discussed this uh, before, but I'd like to hear from you about it. So we have this, the night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And we're getting ready to get the institution of the Passover. I want to include that text now But to give you in advance, the question I'm going to ask is um, the Passover meal or the the, and the feast of unleavened bread. You know, how does this continue throughout the generations today? Right, because if God sets this as a perpetual feast, you know, remind us how that feast is still perpetual. But let me get the rest of the chapter out there on the table. Here we go. This is going to be verses 43 through 51. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised it. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. All right, institution of the Passover. Um, yeah, it seems like there's some different rules for people, whether or not they're of the people of God or not. Yeah, but, well, the history of the Passover is, you know, it has the central piece for um, the people of Israel. You'd think it was, you know, 
uh, scrupulously observed throughout. But you know, there are a number of hints in the in the prophetic writings and in in the books of the kings, um, where it almost sounds as though maybe they didn't always, uh, and sometimes had to be reminded of it, and right. you know, get the rules straight again. Um, that there, you know, you get the whole section in Jeremiah where he's going back through all of the festivals that need to be you know, observed, and you know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, like it's safe to say, eventually, you know, they got to the point where, yeah, it was, it was um, faithfully observed with with most of the other festivals as well. Um, and, and so that you get you can get to the point the time of Jesus, and um, and his follower John can use those feasts almost as an outline for his writing and take us through one major feast after another to say that the calendar of of the Jewish people is sort of the outline for the life and ministry of Jesus and you know, can serve as reminders for us, etc., that uh, there's really nothing in the feast in and of itself that makes anyone holy or not, but that the righteousness that's given to us by God as a gift gets celebrated in a variety of ways in all of these different festivals. But Jesus chooses Passover, right? As the time to make the big reveal, right? And um, you know, as 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 Christians, I don't think we can ever get that out of our minds, right? Jesus didn't say, you know, let's get together on the Feast of Booths or whatever. I could pick one of the others and and do it then. Although he celebrates all of those other ones, this one he stops and says to his guys, "We I've got something big for you. Let's do this together." And um, yeah, we've been doing it ever since, right? Uh, that there's this something about the Passover. You know, it's not like Jesus changed the Passover. Jesus had a whole new deal for him, but it was at Passover that he did it. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a no duh. You know, well, sure, it's Passover. You know, look at the history of Israel and. What happened on that night when the when the Egyptians were killed and they went through the Red Sea and they came out the other way and they sang the song and they stood on the shore and they said, "Well, there, you know, there's God's act of salvation." And Jesus says, "Well, here I am. Sit. Yeah, take this and eat it, and take this and drink it." And you know, it's the you know Jesus' way of saying, "Yeah, there you go." Like the death of the lamb, the blood on the door, all of that stuff. It just so many connections um, that, that you know, not only did Israel continue to celebrate Passover, we keep celebrating um, the death of our Lord and his resurrection and the, the life and salvation that comes through him that never goes away for us. So in essence, you know, when I in essence, I think in reality, Jesus then fulfills Passover. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, right. Because then we have like Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He also speaking of leaven, which is a great connection here. Uh, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, 
for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So with this, you know, the idea of the lamb whose blood is shed and because of that blood, they are passed over for death because of the blood of our lamb, you know, who John the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the eternal death that we deserve, we, we get passed over for the sake of Christ. And so we continue this feast in the Lord's Supper um, etern- eternally. And of course, you know, if we were to be into Paul more directly, then we could see that how there's even um, contingencies there, whereby those who have been uh, trained and raised up in the meaning of the sacrifice uh, are, are the ones who are worthy of partaking, and those who are not are to be made worthy. And we see here in the institution of the Passover the same thing. You know, no foreigner shall eat of it. This isn't for the outsiders. This is for the people of God. And every slave that you have, you, they can eat of it, but they must be prepared. They must be brought into the fellowship. And, of course, in this time, it's by circumcision. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it, um, but they can if they all if the sojourner's there and visiting with you and they want to partake of it, they must be made ready. They must have all his males circumcised. They must be brought into the fellowship. And, of course, we continue that today in our practice of the Lord's Supper. So, yeah, it's, it's just interesting, too, that we see how this Passover becomes a central event. And I, I really am glad that you brought out the fact that Jesus, he celebrates the other festivals, um, they, they're, they're established by God. They have a purpose, but he chooses Passover for what you know might be obvious reasons, but it's always worth pointing it out for those who it may not be obvious that, yeah, he is connecting himself to that Passover lamb that through him we avoid that eternal death. And that's why we continue to receive it. And you also said that through the Passover meal or through any of the festival meals, no one is really made holy because of the meal in and of itself, but and that's true. But then, of course, that changes with Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper, by which those who partake of it worthily receive to their benefit the true body and blood of Jesus. So we actually receive uh, something greater. And when Jesus fulfills something, he fulfills it to its greatest extent. And that's that's that beautiful connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper. Um, yeah, you you um, mentioned the, the, uh, the endurance of the feast. And I just a little sidebar. Yeah, maybe it works too. Um, my my wife and her sisters uh, continue to own and operate the family farm back in Indiana, um, and they they chose to name the the LLC by which they operate that as as Psalm one forty five LLC, um, mostly because their father uh, when he uh, prayed the meal prayer used. Psalm 145 as, as sort of the basis of his prayer, the eyes of all waited upon the old Lord. Um, but also in the beginning, you know, that, uh, that psalm, it talks about those, uh, verse 4 of Psalm 145. One generation will commend your works to another, and they will tell of your mighty acts and speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. The idea that generational faith um, generational faith experience. Um, you know, for those of us who have had the privilege of living in that kind of, of, uh, of a circumstance, um, is an amazing thing. Uh, not just because we believe because our parents believe, but because we've experienced the 
greatness of God, the grace of God, uh, not just because of what our parents read to us out of the Bible, but because the way our parents lived among us uh, and exhibited their faith and and then lived out the with courage in a lot of cases what God had in mind for them to do. Um, so you're thinking of the folks coming out of that. <laughs> I think of these, you know, we've read these things so many times it almost sounds uh, commonplace for us. But, you know, these people just left a country on their way out of a country where the firstborn in every household died that didn't have blood on their doors. And then the folks next to them said, here, take all our gold and silver and get out of here. And then they went out and you know, did all of these amazing things by the hand of God. And they're, and God said, you know, don't forget about that. And I think of the first generation said, yeah, as if. But, uh, you know, but when you go through the Passover ritual, it's always done in the, in the present tense, right? And we're the ones that came out of it. You know, every generation says, that was us. That's us. And not just was us, that is us. We're the folks who come out of that. And, and it's kept alive that way. Um, that it's not just a celebration, but it's an identification. Um, you know, Jesus very carefully uses the word remembrance. You know, there's um, this, 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 um, this living in your own history. Um, that I don't know that people of faith that the people who aren't people of faith get that. You know, what's the common existence with, with those who've gone before us? And we just have to celebrate that Sunday. Yeah, there's this the All Saints reflection that God's people are not in this alone. You know, we're walking with those folks out of that, that uh, Passover experience. That's a, that's a pretty amazing gifts of God to us, I think. Well, and if I may be so bold, you know, Jesus says, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And as a sacramental people who recognize and acknowledge and proclaim Christ's true presence in the sacrament over and against sometimes those who do not, those who do not focus on the remembrance, whereas we tend to focus on the true presence. But we shouldn't do that to the exclusion of well, the remembrance. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's both yeah so, know, and again, that's what I was thinking. Thing. You know, it's a both band. It's not an either or. Right. You know, and we're at the, at the same time really present, and we're at the same time really remembering because living in the past, in the future. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful gift. In the next, uh, actually, tomorrow's text, which is chapter 13, the Moses expounds a little bit on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he brings up exactly what you just did, Pastor. In verse 8 of 13, he says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. But Moses is talking to people who are far removed, or and eventually will be far removed, generationally removed, from the events of Egypt. And yet, as you said, it's still present tense. You're still saying, for what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then the point later on in the same text is that when in time your son comes and asks you, what does this mean? You'll, you'll tell him. <laughs> and then that brings us, or at least brings me, 
to Deuteronomy 6, which begins with the Shema, but then goes into what it looks like to pass down this generational knowledge. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, but then you should impress the commandments on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, treat them as symbols, etc., etc. He actually uses some language here that ties it right into the Exodus. But the point is that to pass down the faith is not to just uh, send them to Sunday school or tell them a little bit about Jesus every now and then, is to really live it out every moment of your lives uh, the best you can, goods and bads, ups and downs, and and then pass that down. And that's what the Lord is establishing here, right? Yeah, and, you know, we're all, we're all wandering Arameans at some point, right? And that there's this um, connection from the very beginning to the very end, that this is the yeah, that's why I love the letter to the Hebrews, you know, that he just, that writer just gets it, you know? Um, so you can see, are you talking about the past or are you talking about the future? And he said, yeah, yeah. Tell, you know, just, I'm not making a distinction between past and future. And there's this great cloud of witnesses and there's, may, um, there may be, there may be dead saints, there may be live saints, but, you know, there's this connection we have. You know, the, probably the most fascinating thing besides the story of salvation in Scripture is its massive connectiveness. You know, it's just really hard to dissociate one part of the Scripture from the other. Um, just kind of, you know, maybe even God had a plan about that. But, you know, that, there's this weaving together along of this that's going on there and um yeah i i think as folks sat around the fire telling each other these stories um i'm hoping that their faces were shiny um you know so that the kids could see wow they really get it that was a really important story they can see the glory of god shining through these stories as they get told you, we've all had teachers at some point in our lives um, who were able to just make us believe what they were saying because they looked like they believed what they were saying. You know, it was just, just such an extraordinary, it didn't matter whether it was, was Shakespeare or science or whatever it was. They knew, they knew for sure what they were talking about. And, and so we did too. Well, you know, I think that's, I know that's true in the, in the, passing on of the faith um, that makes us want to keep passing on the faith. And not just because it's a it's faith is, you know, in us and changes us and makes us uh, be followers, but it's also a pretty cool story. <laughs> Absolutely. Well you know what brother, that's where we're gonna have to end it today. We are at the end of our time. But I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. John Brunner, Pastor Emeritus and former District President of the Eastern District, LCMS. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And folks at home, thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow, we turn the page to chapter 13. God again reinforces the purpose of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and calls for the consecration of all who first opened the womb to him. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.